This podcast contains adult content, including cannabis. You're listening to Bellas Who Blaze. Everyday discussions elevating cannabis lifestyles from a female perspective. Welcome to another episode of Bellas Who Blaze. Joining me today is Chloe Swabrook. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, For those of you who don't know, or maybe you're tuning in from overseas, she is the youngest MP in Aotearoa in more than 40 years at just 26 years old. She is the Green Party spokesperson and the MP for Auckland Central. You advocate on issues such as mental health and sensible drug law reform, just to name a few. You've been a constant and loud supporter of cannabis legalization. You recently helped implement drug testing stations at festivals here in Aotearoa, and you've also been very vocal about Green Fairies receiving amnesty despite some pretty strong opposition. You are a sharp orator, a voice of our generation, not to mention a clapback queen. We cannot forget the OK Boomer moment. If you don't know about it, I will post so you know. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. What an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. I think my excitement to have you on just like took over. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, it's, yeah. I think one of the many things when it comes to drug law reform is that there's a number of politicians who are just terrified to talk about it. So, no, I appreciate that you think that I'm eloquent on this issue, but it has been very much years of deep diving into it at this point. I'm sure, and I'm really excited to dive into some of that knowledge today. And I guess. Today, we really want to focus on cannabis legalization in New Zealand, the current realities, the challenges, and also where are we heading? So I hope to touch on all of those throughout this episode. Um, But to start, I wanted to kind of ask you, why is drug law reform and the fair, safe, and affordable access to medicinal cannabis important to you? And what drives you to push this agenda? So I've been pretty clear uh, many times when asked about this because I've been caricatured by people like Simon Bridges and Simeon Brown, who are pretty well-renowned National Party MPs for their very conservative views, uh, as somebody who just wants to talk about drugs all the time. Uh And the attempts at conflating uh, how I am pro-cannabis legalization with how I am supposedly pro-cannabis. And the irony that I've pointed out is that actually, if you're pro-prohibition, you're actually one of the most pro-drugs people that are like out there. Because under a system of prohibition, we have seen more substances uh, of more and more dangerous chemical compounds, uh, you know, an inability to track the potency of them, whether they are laced with other substances, and a huge amount of, like, basically an explosion and other harm associated with it over the past 40 plus years under the Misuse of Drugs Act 1975. But I didn't come into Parliament to advocate for drug law reform. Um, I was elected at the end of 2017 as a Green Party List MP, um, obviously, as you alluded to before, post this 2020 campaign, um, we won the seat of Auckland Central, which was awesome. But uh, I uh, got in and the Greens were presented with the opportunity for the first time to be explicitly part of government. That uh, was formalised in our confidence and supply arrangement. Uh, I believe it was line 18 of the 20 commitments in that confidence and supply agreement was a commitment to treating drugs as a health issue, including a referendum on the legalisation of cannabis on or by 2020, which was the next um, election. 
And uh, Julianne Genter, who uh, formerly had a member's bill that had been drawn out of the biscuit tin or the ballot, which is effectively a lottery for backbench MPs, uh, had her bill on the legalisation of medicinal cannabis uh, drawn out just before that election. She, becoming a minister, uh, could not progress a member's bill. So we were discussing things around the caucus table and, you know, the first few weeks after the party had come back together, uh, after that election and the negotiation to get into government in 2017, and I ended up taking that bill on. So in the first uh, member's day that we had, uh, which was in the first few weeks that Parliament was sitting at the start of 2018, uh, I immediately was thrown into the deep end and had a member's bill on the legalisation of medicinal cannabis. So from that point, when you start engaging with this as an issue and you meet the patients and the whanau who at that point in time were dealing in a black market, you know, we have evidence from 2014, unfortunately, it was the most recent, but that evidence shows that about 10% of the population use cannabis uh, on a pretty frequent basis and 43% of those people use it for what they deemed as medical purposes. So if you break that all down, that's around 200,000 New Zealanders who are using cannabis for medical purposes at that point in time in an illegal market. And still to this day, given that there's only a few you know, hundred or a few thousand people who are accessing the incredibly expensive legal market, there's still going to be hundreds of thousands of New Zealanders who are out there doing this illicitly. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of the starting point for me, which started to break that dam. As soon as you start uh, looking into the issue of uh, cannabis prohibition, it's very hard to not get very angry about the lack of justice or actually the far more of like the inherent injustice of how this uh, came about in the first place historically. Uh, and how it continues to perpetuate harm. And then when you look across at legal models across the world, even in the States, where there has been an approach which has continued to entrench those uh, inequalities, when we've ended up with kind of a more commercial legal model as well. So, yeah, it fundamentally has come down to justice for me. Yeah, and like you touched on, there's a lot of racism involved in the prohibition of cannabis and that does disproportionately affect Māori and Pacifica peoples of Aotearoa as well. Thank you. That was a very robust answer. So I wanted to touch on that current medicinal framework for cannabis, because like you mentioned, we already have an existing medicinal cannabis industry. Yes, it's highly inaccessible to a lot of medicinal patients just because of its cost. And also the stringent regulations on the testing of cannabis products that we have in New Zealand, which is also another barrier. Why is our current medicinal cannabis system not working? So the most basic answer to that from a structural and regulatory position is the way that we set up our medicinal cannabis regime under the legislation uh, that essentially excluded cannabis that was deemed to be medicinal cannabis from the Misuse of Drugs Act 1975, so made it technically a legal product, effectively said that everything that created that regulatory regime for licensing of legal products was going to be created in what's called secondary legislation or regulation. In order to create that regulation, it empowered this new body called the Medicinal Cannabis Agency, who was uh, required to come up 
with this kind of framework. And the concern that we had from the get-go was that they were going to go down a route known as GMP, or good medical practice, for a highly pharmaceuticalized version of what medicine looks like. And you can understand, uh, when you put a cultural lens on top of this, why uh, that happened. That happened because of the historical stigma associated to cannabis and the want to see it as something entirely different from the natural plant. So, you know, when we think about medicine and the very Western way of thinking about medicine, we don't think about natural products. We tend to think about pills. We tend to think about topical ointments. We tend to think about, you know, sprays under people's tongues or injections, those kinds of things. So that framing and way of thinking about medicine as a pharmaceutical product very much bled into those very strict regulations that we have right now. So those strict regulations have effectively played out in practice as a barrier to more products coming on stream. And you'll often hear um, even our Prime Minister, but definitely our Minister of Health, talking about how we just need to wait because more products will eventually jump through those hoops. And when we have more of those products, the typical market forces will come into effect whereby that competition and economies of scale will drive down prices. But the problem is that the regulations act as such a barrier to those products coming on stream that you aren't even beginning to get into those market forces of competition and economies of scale. So that's where we've ended up in this stasis and this kind of standoff where products aren't able to come on stream. So more and more patients are becoming more and more frustrated. And the real kind of two extremes of this situation have manifest on one side of things with folks who are going, well, we can't get affordable products domestically, so we're going to import those products. And by virtue of the legislation, there is the opportunity, if you have a prescription from your clinical practitioner, to have that medicinal cannabis imported by your medical practitioner to their medical practice. Uh, this is perhaps most publicly well-renowned in the case of Katie Thomas and her young son, Eddie. Now, there we've seen that MedSafe and Customs have been stopping their product at the border, primarily because the regulation is so hard to understand. Uh, but I also put in a parliamentary written question, which is the equivalent of an OAA, but something that's available for MPs to do, uh, to the uh, Minister for Customs, the Honourable Mika Faituri, trying to get an understanding of just how frequently this was happening. And because the um, customs does not discriminate between whether cannabis is coming in for medicinal purposes or for recreational purposes, again, noting it's the same plant, uh, they have uh, provided me with the evidence that shows that we are stopping cannabis, which is likely to be medicinal cannabis, coming into our country every three days. And that is indicative of, you know, when you start to unpack why on earth people are importing cannabis into a country that is effectively awash with illicit cannabis, you start to understand the scale of this problem and just how little MedSafe are able to understand the regulatory regime they've been put in front of. So that's one side. People who are trying to follow the law are not able to. The other side of things is the Green Fairies who are continuing to be prosecuted and criminalized for effectively trying to provide relief to people in their communities. And for that basis, I have called, or rather because of that, I have called for an amnesty that is an end to the constant prosecution of those Green Fairies who are providing, in my mind, a public service uh, that the state is refusing to recognize. Absolutely. And I think you touched on a really good point there around education, whether that's around 
you know, the regulations that surround cannabis at the moment, but also just the understanding of its applications as a medicine as, and for therapeutic use itself. And that is also a barrier in terms of access of education for healthcare professionals to better understand how people with seizures need this or how it integrates into their care. And that's not currently possible right now, this form of education. And why is this? And how do you see this changing? Well, it's those same historical forces that have said, this is a bad drug and this is a good drug. And ironically, even of those drugs that we have conceived of as bad, those ones are typically the illicit ones. You won't hear doctors talking typically in the same way that they talk about the likes of cannabis or other substances in the way that they talk about alcohol. There has been a movement in talking more and more about the harms of tobacco. But again, if you look only 20 or 30 years ago, doctors were at that point in time were still extolling some of the benefits of tobacco or being brought on side with tobacco companies to argue publicly for a lack of regulation. So there's that historical stuff, um, which also um, has bled into stigma, which has said that a medicine can only be conceived of as a pharmaceutical. And therein, you have to start unpacking all of the um, kind of commercial and corporate forces, which ultimately have a far greater lobbying power in the political sphere than those people who were, again, traditionally conceived of as hippies and kind of out there thinkers who were trying to challenge the norms of what drugs or treatment or therapy should look like. Uh, So to try and demarcate and unpack all of that stuff is probably far, far bigger a discussion than we've got Mm. time for. But I think that's the crux of it. Interesting. And I love how you touched on the current perspective of medicine in New Zealand and how there is a much more Western lens to it. And if we acknowledged more of, you know, the practices of rongoa, what would our healthcare look like? Mm. And that as well is where um, when we talk about, you know, GPs receiving, um, you know, some form of education or otherwise about medicinal cannabis, one of the great ironies of uh, cannabis as a treatment uh, or the potential of cannabis as a treatment is that the evidence coming on stream to enable doctors to be upskilled has historically been barred by the prohibition of this substance, which has meant that so many um, doctors and those in the medical profession get stuck in a feedback loop in the same way as our politicians do, arguing, well, there's not the evidence that this works to the same level of efficacy as XYZ drug, but the reason that we don't have that evidence is because we're refusing to engage in creating that evidence in the first place. And that's, you know, kind of the self-perpetuating cycle of problems. And then the other um, kind of just final point on that is the level of influence uh, that those pharmaceutical companies have to create that form of education for doctors has in turn created that self-perpetuating cycle of a preference for pharmaceuticals because there is a massive commercial imperative to ensure that doctors have that level of education about those products. Whereas, you know, to say to a doctor who's been practicing in a certain way for 40 odd years that this is a new medical practice and you need to get up to speed with it, of course, if it challenges their whole worldview, it's going to be quite difficult to get that to come on stream. And We have a new medicinal cannabis industry growing in New Zealand, and some companies aren't hiring those with past criminal records, potentially who are associated to cultivation or some kind of supply, and arguably some of the most talented growers or cultivators in our country. 
will our government expunge these records in future to ensure they're not excluded from an industry? Should it grow wider? So this is one of the things that I spent a really long time fighting for, particularly from that justice angle. So there's a number of different ways that you can perceive of the justice or the injustice of criminal prohibition of cannabis, one of which is obviously the denial of the only medicine that works for certain people. The other side of it is we have it on abundant record. We have some of the best research in the world on uh, cannabis usage in this country uh, that shows that 80% of New Zealanders will use cannabis by the time they're 21 years old, which which again goes to show that a majority of New Zealanders, including a majority of people who sit in our parliament right now and oversee the law uh, for people who have done exactly the same thing that they did, but that criminalizes and prosecutes those people, although some of us happen to sit in parliament, uh, is, is utterly bewildering. So some people carry penalties, whereas a majority of the population have done this thing. Even anyway. just the fact that, so, sorry, even just the fact that hmm. our current licensed medicinal cannabis companies have actually sourced genetics from the illicit market. So the same plant, depending on who's growing it, is illegal or not legal. And that amnesty... Yeah, totally. And there's kind of two points to that, right? So one of them is the amnesty to enable uh, products or rather um, different strains of cannabis to go from the illicit market into the so-called legal market was actually one of the uh, things that I really strongly advocated for, not from the basis that we should be treating those two types of people or those two systems differently, but on the basis that uh, in the way that our medicinal cannabis law was originally drafted when presented to Parliament in 2008, was a complete lack of recognition that cannabis even existed in this country. So it was almost as though we were creating this thing from scratch. And I had to remind the minister and his officials that actually we already had this stuff here. And we therefore, if we wanted to be able to engage with the reality of that, create a form of amnesty to enable those illicit strains to jump over into the legal um, kind of way of doing things, as opposed to simply just importing and creating a legal um, kind of market, for lack of a better term, with those imported strains. The second side of it is, you know, to your original question around uh, the folks who have been disproportionately and historically criminalized and uh, penalized for cannabis prohibition are oftentimes quite different to the demographics of folks who end up profiteering from a legal medicinal cannabis system. And the reason for that largely is because of exactly as you pointed out, that we have continued to uh, enable effectively people who were punished under prohibition to be unable to now, having served their time when it was illegal, uh, to jump over and to use their skill set in that new legal um, established realm. And we fought uh, for yeah at least a year to enable people who had former convictions to be able to engage in the legal medicinal cannabis market. Unfortunately, because of the politics of the day, and at that point in time, we had three parties in government, uh, I did not manage to get everybody who had a former conviction in cannabis sold enabled to uh, run a medicinal cannabis company, but we did have a very explicit ability for them to be engaged in a role in that company or to be employed in that space. So we made it explicit that that was not a barrier. Um, One of the other key things that I uh, ensured, you know, was really front and centre of the debate on cannabis legalisation and control per the referendum that we had at 2020 
is that we didn't want to end up with a situation which is probably best uh, you know, akin to what happened 35 years ago with the homosexual law reform, where finally in this country in the mid-1980s, we uh, decriminalized homosexuality. And it wasn't until I was in Parliament in 2018 or 19 that we finally expunged criminal convictions for particularly those men, a number of whom had passed on by that point in time for that historical, what we perceived of as crime. And I tried to connect those dots and have people see just how mind-boggling it was that we would be setting up a legal regime, but not enabling people who were obviously a minority of people who used and engaged in the substance that uh, those people to carry the burden and the weight of those criminal convictions and not be allowed to apply their skill set to effectively take back that sense of agency over their life. Um, yeah, again, unfortunately, on a very mar- narrow margin, we lost that referendum yes. as well. It's not over yet. <laughs> no, it definitely is not. And so similar to the implementation of those drug testing stations, one of the keys to safe consumption of any substance is to have transparency on what it actually is. So what can a legal market for a substance like cannabis do for the safety of our communities? I think a lot of people perceive of decriminalization, which, by the way, only deals with the demand side as some kind of like moral middle ground or something when it comes to making cannabis a safer substance or ensuring that people are safe when they are consuming that substance. Noting, of course, that cannabis is not something that you can overdose on. Uh, Nobody has ever had a death attributed to the consumption of cannabis soul um, and et cetera, et cetera. So it goes. And obviously also addiction and otherwise, you know, it's not the same when it comes to um, pharmaceutical opiates and all of those other things. Uh, But fundamentally, the point of legalization is to say we also need to have a sense of control and understanding of what is coming on stream as far as supply goes. And this is actually the case when it comes to um, the potential regulation uh, and therefore the amnesty that I put forward for green fairies. Because we know that the majority of green fairies are obviously providing a substance that largely um, fits with what they are saying it is, but often they don't have the kind of uh, testing regime that would be enabled through a legal licensed market uh, to be able to confirm that it is what they think it is. Some green fairies, I know for a fact, uh, behind the scenes, have ended up investing about $20,000 on that testing kit. But again, there are those barriers to being able to do this stuff when it is illegal, which in turn means that some people, very small number of them, but some people may be ending up being sold snake oil, you know, something that is not what it says on the tin. So that's one of the key reasons to legally regulate a product. Another reason to legally regulate the product from the medicinal cannabis side, as well as actually the um, kind of recreational use of it, is yeah, is, is to set up a framework where if people are experiencing problems, that they have the freedom to come forward and to talk about that. But more than that, that there is the opportunity to intervene in potentially problematic usage. And here I use the equivalence of how bartenders, for example, have a legal responsibility and a duty of care that can be enforced to not serve alcohol to somebody who is overly intoxicated, to ensure that they aren't you know, behaving in certain ways at bars and other antisocial behavior is able to be reined in because we have those consumption spaces and we are able to have adult mature discussions about them. So those are kind of the key reasons. It's knowing what's in the substance. It's knowing 
a react when you don't respond how you would have thought you might, but also having those social safeguards around the person who is consuming it to make sure that if things do go awry, that they can be protected or taken out of that potentially harmful circumstance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that surrounds the whole piece around education the fact that prohibition Mm. has prevented even just education to the standard New Zealander who wants to dabble in cannabis has nowhere no idea where to start so they just have to trial it themselves versus if we're starting to drink alcohol there's a lot more guidance around those factors and the great the, the point that I've been trying to make for you know a few years now but it's funnily enough only started to be picked up in mainstream media over the past like two weeks is that what was proposed in the Cannabis Legalization Control Bill was a form of regulation that is actually far safer than what we currently have for alcohol. And if you look at the history of alcohol prohibition, which New Zealand never went down the road of, but if you look at it in the likes of the US, for example, you know, all of those typical things of the so-called ironclad law of prohibition followed, where when you take a substance from what is, you know, potentially a legal kind of regulatory regime and put it into the black market, you all of a sudden have criminal players who are potentially going to uh, produce smaller and smaller packages, which pack more and more of a punch. And that's where you got moonshine that potentially made you blind. And kind of thing applies with the hysterical logic that is used by some prohibitionists who say, well, the cannabis these days is not the same, you know, strength of what we were smoking back 30, 40 years ago in the hippie era. And that is actually an argument for cannabis regulation. So people know the strength of the substance that they're consuming. I don't think these people walk through this stuff in their head. But, you know, to that point around safety in particular and the um, equivalence with liquor uh, is that with alcohol, we have a huge sense of glamorization and normalization and that normalization of particularly excessive drinking. You're supposed to celebrate with a drink. You're supposed to commiserate with a drink. You drink when it's a normal day. You drink when you catch up with your friends. All of those behaviors are so normalized and unchallenged because we've enabled the entrenchment of a heavily commercialized kind of market. And if you look at what we were proposing in the Cannabis Legalization and Control Bill, it was far different from that. It effectively recognized that adults can put something into their body, but they should be informed about what they're doing there. And we weren't going to enable the creation of these massive monoliths that were going to consistently lobby and push for the expansion of boundaries so that they can inflict potentially more harm because they were in search of profit. Absolutely. And with legalized markets already available and already up and running, we know that countries like Canada, the sky has not fallen. They've legalized cannabis for the last three years. Teen use is down. In fact, one mm-hmm. of the only demographics that actually increased use was the 65 plus because they're all in pain. Their bones and joints and everything are achy and they just need that relief. And arguably they might not have known where to access it prior exactly. as well. That's exactly. <laughs> and the fact that it's tested, you know exactly what potency it is, etc. cetera. Um, have you visited a legal market and what did you think? Yeah, so I've been, I went over to the States on a trip called ACYPL, um, which is the American Council of Young Political Leaders, which is something that was invented in the Cold War. And it's this diplomatic exchange where senators and Congress people from the States come over to New Zealand um, and to other countries that are part of this program and vice versa. 
So I went over there with a number of politicians from other political parties, and I saw um, different models that were working differently in different places. Washington was a really interesting example, you know, talking to people who were involved in the establishment of that. Alison Holcomb, um, who was involved in uh, one of the NGOs that was advocating for harm reduction, speaking to her about, you know, the way that they advocated for it, one of the big regrets that she noted she had was that they they didn't think that they could win their equivalent referendum with uh, an enablement of what we know as personal cultivation, because they were afraid that that would be terrifying to certain demographics who would otherwise vote yes. But again, as a harm minimization approach and recognizing the reality that some people are going to grow or otherwise are going to be prosecuted criminally for growing, uh, she had a, a regret about that. But what we see um, in those different markets and what I saw uh, is effectively just the ability for adults to have conversations about consumption that we know is already happening in places like New Zealand. Um, we were you know, talking to people who are involved in running some of these small businesses. Uh, it was evident that they were invested in obviously knowing what on earth the products were that they were selling. Whereas again, in an illicit market, people are kind of just like smelling this thing and going, well, I think it's this. So that, that testing and that regulation of the product and the level of information that uh, consumers are able to get, we're really um, interrogating particularly the uh, kind of harm interventions for some of those really heavy users. And that's another thing, which is a massive benefit of taking the issue out of the light, out of the darkness and into the light is all of a sudden we don't have these hypotheticals about the people who are using to excess anymore. You are able to see those consumption patterns because they are legally monitored, which means in turn that you can intervene in that problematic usage, whereas you don't have those same duties of care in an illegal black market. So all of those things, yeah, seeing them firsthand was just phenomenal. And it's really funny because the only um, kind of areas that I've been in in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where I've been standing next to legal cannabis plants uh, in a hemp farm um, in regional New Zealand, and I've been into a few different medicinal cannabis laboratories. And it's just, yeah, wild to see it on a scale that it occurs in the States. Mm, absolutely. It is definitely another world out there. And I guess I just want to ask a slightly personal question. Have you consumed cannabis before yourself? And can you tell me a little bit about your experience? Yeah, so I'm perfectly fine going on the record as I have before and saying that I am one of the politicians who has used cannabis in the past. Um, you are part of the 80%. <laughs> I am part of the 80% of Aotearoa New Zealand who has done that. And I actually, funnily enough, uh, made the point, or someone someone tweeted in 2019 or so that maybe the reason that most politicians don't want to uh, talk about cannabis or talk about drugs in a rational and mature way is because they will end up in a cartoon smoking a giant bomb. And that's exactly what's happened to me. I have been yes. depicted um, subsequent to the failure of my medicinal cannabis um, members bill, formerly Julianne's. Uh, I was in the paper as a cartoon smoking a giant bomb. It was just <laughs> the, the funniest thing. But in terms of the impacts um, and the consumption of it, look, um, we are taught, I think, 
when we are discussing this stuff in an era of prohibition to never accidentally end up being seen to endorse the product. Uh, and I think for me, being really honest and cautious about that, mm-hmm. um, for me, I, I've been really also open about the problems that I have had with regard to not being addicted to, but abusing alcohol in really dark times in my life. And mm-hmm. um, I'm conscious of knowing people who have done the same things with cannabis. So I guess for me, um, the argument doesn't come from a personal place in terms of I want to consume this. It very Mm -hmm. much comes from one of public health. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such a well-rounded answer. And one last question to wrap up. The cannabis referendum was both a little disappointing, but also encouraging knowing that half the country do believe legalization should happen in New Zealand. What is next on the agenda for you and how do people like us help? Hmm. That's a really cool question. Um, I think there's a few really key things to take away from that cannabis referendum. As you pointed out, like half the country who voted, and bear in mind it's half the country who voted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's still possibly a large number of people out there, had they been politically engaged and motivated, may have potentially got this across the line. But we know that around 34,000 people, had they switched their vote to the yes side, we would have we would have won. We would have got it across the line. But we didn't. So what that means in terms of political and legal reality is that we can't progress the same legislation that we had already drafted, which doesn't mean that we cut off any dialogue around drug law reform or around how we treat and deal with cannabis because cannabis hasn't gone away. And the point that I've made when the National Party has tried to say, you can't talk about anything now because this very narrow, very specific, very prescriptive law was shot down by a margin, a tiny margin, is, well, actually, you know, one and a half million New Zealanders voted in favour of this, and that is far more New Zealanders than voted for the National Party. But we're not hearing from we're not not hearing from you guys anymore. So they're the quite loud. Is, is that, <laughs> you know, um, even and another really important point is that even those who were opposed to cannabis legalisation, as was put forward in that bill, some of them had the um, kind of issue that. A number of people, for example, didn't read it and contacted me afterwards um, saying that they wish they had engaged in that. Other people were saying uh, that they didn't quite like this little part of how it might have happened. So they had a different preference. Uh, but even those most ardent prohibitionists who, you know, have taken the line that, you know, we've got to think about the children, which ironically, if you were really thinking about the children, you'd want to legally regulate to reduce harm. Absolutely. That aside. It's much easier to get right now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and most, we know again from the data, most New Zealanders will encounter cannabis while they're at high school and there's no safeguards around that kind of period of consumption. But even those most ardent conservative prohibitionists had to and ended up adopting the position that people should no longer be criminally prosecuted for using the substance. So my main takeaway from all of those different factors and the referendum being so close is that, funnily enough, the status quo is now completely untenable. You add on top of that that over the past term of parliament and government, the Labour-led government commissioned two reports, Tureki Tureki, the Safe and Effective Justice Review, and Hiara Oranga, the Mental Health and Addiction Inquiry. The Mental Health and Addiction Inquiry said decriminalise all drugs. Uh, Tureki Tureki said uh, legalise cannabis, decriminalise all drugs, and potentially look at ways to legally regulate the supply chain of all of those substances that are presently causing harm in our society. So it was far more radical in this proposition. 
And that's where, for me, the argument now is in the space of how do we just completely repeal and replace the Frankenstein of the Misuse of Drugs Act 1975? So to the point of your question, and also worth pointing out that um, being working behind the scenes as, you know, the mainstream media has kind of been reporting on for about six months now on how we can potentially build a coalition for decriminalization across the parliamentary benches. But I don't necessarily think it's my place sole to lead something like that. And again, politically, it's really important that we have other leaders emerging from other parties. So how people who are out there um, in the country can uh, kind of get involved in this kind of stuff, there are some really awesome organizations who were at the forefront of arguing for the need for sensible drug regulation. They were the likes of Just Speak. It was People Against Prisons. Um, It was Know Your Stuff. It was uh, the New Zealand Drug Foundation and probably a few more. There was, you know, VUSA and a few different student organizations as well who came to the fore. I would look into all of those different associations and figure out where your skill set is best fit and what your kind of broader co-papa is, because some of them obviously are also uh, kind of trying to tackle the prison system or the justice system or solely kind of drug law reform and then others are concerned with you know community or student issues or otherwise another way to do it is to just go and talk to your local MP um, unless you're in Auckland Central because I'm already massively on board with it um, but you know lobby those politicians who are currently really scared to talk about this stuff because the only way that they will feel empowered to do so uh, is if they know that they will have the support of their constituents So light a fire underneath them and do that best by ensuring that they're armed with all of the information and your support. Thank you so much. Well, we're going to have to start blazing things up then. (laughs) (laughs) That is the one. (laughs) Thank you so much, Chloe, for your time. I know you are incredibly busy, so I really appreciate having this corridor with you today. Thank you so much. I apologize that I have to run so quick, but I'll see you again, Ihoa. No problem. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Bella Blaze. A huge thank you to our guest, the one and only Chloe Swabrook. Follow her on IG at chloe.swabrook and stay up to date on the latest. Thanking our listeners who come and chill in the Bella Blaze lounge and matane and matewa. Thanks for listening to Bella Blaze.